Hey, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number 10, double digits, can you believe it? My name is Kieran, and this week I talk about the law. We have our regular tech timeout, and of course some news from the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, once again, I really appreciate you for taking the time to listen to my little podcast. We're at episode number 10. I really can't believe it. I remember when I started thinking I would have enough content for about six short episodes. And here we are at number 10. If you want to give me feedback on any of the previous 10 episodes or interact with the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com Okay, so no real updates in my adventures in treasure hunting this week. I needed to restock up on my brownie points as any married person, but no surprise after getting approached by an ill-informed archaeologist last week that this week I'd like to discuss the law and how it pertains to metal detecting. Now, I've checked out the law in most countries and I return to tell you most laws break down to four simple points. If the public can hunt, where the public can hunt and what the public can hunt for and what the public must do if they find something of archaeological importance. You might have noticed I was very deliberate in including public in what I was saying and this is why I believe there is a very distinct conflict of interest when a self-regulating and self-appointed body such as archaeologists are one-sidedly writing the law that governs the outcome of the four points if the public can hunt, where the public can hunt, what the public can hunt for and what the public must do if they find something of archaeological importance. Now, this is not an attack on archaeology or the museums, but a commentary on the inherent contradiction where national museums and government-mandated archaeologist groups are charged to maintain and protect the national heritage on behalf of the public, while dedicating significant resources to keeping the hobby metal detectorists and hobby archaeologists away, all the while continuing to refuse to engage with this amateur public. What's really interesting is that these bodies' roots are firmly and well-established in grave robbing, criminal looting and antiquity trafficking, which eventually transformed to organised amateur groups in the 19th century, where they would have outings to sites to partake in stripping out sites and divvying up the finds so they could be displayed privately. It was only in the 20th century that archaeology became the academic pursuit that we know today, and although they would let you believe that full scientific rigour is followed in keeping the pursuit up to date, most of the facts that are parroted are in fact not based on scientific research, but in fact based on a philosophical opinion of several amateur archaeologists from the early 19th century and it is only in the last two decades that scientific rigour has started to creep into this purely philosophical pursuit. Now, this is not an attack on anybody but a statement to highlight that archaeologists are trying to keep out the very people that were the heart of archaeology in the 19th century. I believe the discipline of archaeology needs to move towards embracing the public through community education programmes and inclusion. A great example of this is what the UK have done with their portable antiquity scheme, allowing middle ground between both factions, resulting in 95% of all fines reported to the portable antiquity scheme are reported by metal detectorates, while 65% of those fines being jewellery. These fines bring in significant revenue for the museums both nationally and locally. I actually believe in the law, I think it's a fair enough law. But where most countries and museums let themselves down is that they believe that the law is enough on its own and unmanaged and blank out the fact that there is a significant number of enthusiastic amateurs who metal detect 
who Mudlark, and who now Magnafish. And they are not doing it for the money. They are not doing it to find something and put it in a box hidden under their stairs, never to be seen again. They are actually doing it to find something cool that may be significant in the history of their locality. But the dream for a lot is to have something in a museum with their name on a plaque below. To simply think we are in it for the money highlights that you clearly do not understand metal detecting and the lengths we will go to to get a pre-decimal coin that a museum wouldn't even look at. Let's talk about rewards or museums purchasing the finds. I believe that although we are not in it for the money, that on a rare occasion that something monumental is found that a reward or purchase is offered. This is not to make the finder rich, as the average payout in the UK during 2019 was £700, but promotes good behaviour in reporting fines. I know I would rather have £700 in my pocket and a find on display in a museum than a gold cup worth tens of thousands under my stairs unable to show it off. Every argument has edge cases, and in this situation, it's the Nighthawks that are the edge case in metal detecting. These people are not interested in history or the hobby of metal detecting, but are only interested in the potential monetary value of fines and will grave rob, partake in criminal looting and trafficking of these fines. See any similarity here? These are the edge cases and represent a small number of people who metal detect. Just like someone who gets behind the wheel of a car drunk, speeds and accidentally kills someone, you don't ban all cars. You have a public education system where you reduce the number of road deaths by keeping up to date with the latest scientific safety measures and educate the public about the dangers of drink driving. But alas, right now, across the board, metal detecting is being tarred with the same brush because a few edge cases are ruining the hobby for everyone else. As I finish up, I just want to reference the white paper, Public Participation in Archaeology by Susie Thomas and Joanne Lee, which helped me in my research for this topic. Up next is this week's Tech Timeout, where we discuss something that has stumped me over and over again, and that is identifying metals. Hey, welcome to this week's Tech Timeout! <laughs> Now this week I discuss how to identify metals as this is a fundamental skill I need to work on and I know some of you will benefit from this too. We have all been in the situation where we have found a nondescript piece of metal and unable to identify it. So we will look at this from a few different aspects, volume and density, ferrous and non-ferrous and finally and probably the most important to metal detectorists is how they corrode. We will also cover a few common tests that are carried out to help identify certain metals. Starting with ferrous and non-ferrous, you will probably know this one already. If a metal is considered ferrous, this means that, as an alloy, a large portion of its constituent metals are iron, and because of this, ferrous metals are normally magnetic, and can be identified by simply holding a magnet to it. Some metals, like chromium stainless steel, are ferrous and not magnetic at all, but this is just something to look out for. When finding a ferrous metal, we can normally identify it straight away by the presence of rust or iron concretions, and normally we would try to discriminate out these finds. You can drill down to how much iron is present in these finds by carrying out a spark test, but this is an abrasive test and you might not want to risk damage in your find. However, a spark test works by striking the ferrous metal with sufficient velocity to produce a plume of sparks, and by observing its plume of sparks, a trained eye can identify the ratios of ferrous metals. There are many tools and visual aids online to help you here. Non-ferrous metals vary in difficulty in identification. Some are quite easy to identify like lead, but some require more testing to help identify them. 
You can use volume and density to help identify metals, but these are useless in identifying any metal that would be an ally, such as bronze, which is an ally of copper and tin, but how much of each? That is why you can't use volume and density calculations to identify bronze or brass. But there are other ways to tell the difference between them. For example, bronze is hard and brittle, while brass is more malleable. Also, when you simply look at them, brass is normally yellow in colour like muted gold, while bronze is reddish-brown colour. But how do you distinguish gold from brass? Because brass looks very similar to gold. Gold is very heavy at just over 19 grams per cubic centimetre. And even though we can't accurately measure the density of brass, it would be significantly lighter than gold. Also, even though they can look alike in normal situations, if you are pulling out gold from the ground, it will not have any corrosion on it and look as new as the day it was made while brass will normally always have a full patina. So if you pull out a find and you suspect that it might be gold, but it has a browny greeny patina, I'm afraid it's not time to break out the gold dance yet. So corrosion is almost a key test to identify metal detecting finds. Iron will produce a red rust, copper will turn green, lead will have a powdery surface and silver will turn black. If you can't identify a find by anything I've mentioned already, there are many tests that you can do. I'll discuss them briefly so you can have base knowledge allowing you to get your Google Foo on to research further. The first test is the hardness test or sometimes called the file test. Not really recommended for your metal detecting finds, but the hardness test is defined, wait for it, as a test to determine the resistance a material exhibits to permanent deformation by penetration of another harder metal. In other words, how resistive a metal is to being damaged by a harder metal. For example, if we use the file test, you can determine if a metal is pretty hard by simply running a file across it to see if the file damages the surface or the edge indicating how hard it is. If the metal is undamaged, it's safe to assume that it's harder than the file. A fracture test. Another test not really recommended for checking metal detecting finds, normally reserved for testing the interior of wells or metal joints, but a fracture test can show the interior makeup of the metal, giving an indication of what the metal looks like in its uncorroded state. Is there a crystalline structure? Is it porous? And on and on. All can indicate what type of metal you're looking at. The spark test, I've mentioned this previously, is used to discern the general classification of forest metals. The magnetic test, I think this is self-explanatory, but is used to identify if a metal is ferrous or not. And finally, the appearance test. The appearance metal composition test includes such thing as color and appearance of machined as well as unmachined surfaces. This also uses the shape of the piece to help identify the metal. For example, if it's in the shape of a bell, it's pretty safe to assume the metal is bronze or brass. That's it for this week's Tech Time Out. Up next is the news and views of the world of metal detecting and treasure hunting. First up this week, we have a story in Scuba Diver magazine, a Breitling watch found by British metal detecting divers off Corfu. You might know the metal detectors in this story. I know I certainly do, as they have a great YouTube channel called Go and Garrett. And in fact, it was Stephen and Simon's channel that prompted me to purchase the Pulse Dive last year. Check out the story via the link in the show notes, but also check out the guys on their Go and Garrett YouTube channel. Up next, a British Columbia man's find becomes a bam for pandemic loss. At first glance, this is a story that looks like any ring recovery story that we have read over the years. Person loses ring. A few years later, a detectorist finds the ring. Detectorist embarks on this hero's journey of trying to find the owner and returns the ring. Where this story is different 
is both ring finder Dave Roschuk and ring loser Aaron Martinello. Both had been recently laid off due to the pandemic and both get the warm and fuzzies for getting the ring back to the rightful owners. A great story and check out the link in the show notes. And finally, I can't have the news this week without having a story of magna fishing. I think the headline says it all. Dorking Man 22 describes the moment he pulled up an unexploded bomb while magna fishing in the river Mohol. Check out the story and all this week's stories. The links are in the show notes. Okay, I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast, episode number 10. Can you believe it? Follow us on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. If you want to contribute or have suggestions for topics to cover, pop us an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. Don't forget to check out our website, www.TheMetalDetectingShow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there and happy hunting. Happy hunting.